0: Welcome to History of Retina's Leaders and Legends series. The purpose of these interviews is to capture firsthand stories from individuals with unique retinal insights of historical significance. Through these discussions, we hope to provide a fuller understanding of the evolution of the science and practice of retina through the lens of those who have lived it. I'm delighted to be joined here today by Dr. Rick Spade, a retina specialist in Manhattan and a partner with Vitreous Retina Immaculate Consultants of New York. He has authored nearly 400 papers in peer-reviewed journals, and he is currently assistant editor of the journal Retina. Rick is past executive editor of the American Journal of Ophthalmology, and he is a former member of the editorial board of Investigative Ophthalmology and Visual Science. He is also an innovator with multiple granted U.S. patents and patents pending. While Rick's awards and honors are too numerous to list here in their entirety, some highlights include the ASRS Founders Award, the AAO Life Achievement Honor Award, the Retina Society Award of Merit, the Macula Society J. Donald Gass Award, the European Vitreoretinal Society Award Lecture, the Your Retina Lecture, the Club Jules Gonin Wacker Prize and the Doyne Medal presented to Rick in honor of his giving the 103rd Doyne Lecture at Oxford University. That, my friend, is pretty heady stuff. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, John. So let's start at the beginning of your life. What was it like growing up Ricky Spade?
1: I grew up in a kind of semi-rural area in Allentown. Um, My parents were not particularly educated, but they were the first people in their family lines to go to high school. On my father's side, mostly from a family of farmers Pennsylvania Dutch or Mennonite kind of farmers, which sounds kind of funny, but on uh, my mother's side, coal miners from the middle of Pennsylvania. So
0: what was your childhood like in terms of education? Was that something that was emphasized?
1: No, and that's a kind of an interesting concept, and I think it like, at least opened my eyes to the many things, I guess, that you wouldn't be exposed to if you didn't come from a kind of a background like that. By the time we got into ninth grade, this uh, had a very good biology teacher. Mr. Schmoyer, and he was really a really good teacher. And I got to know him just as like on a friendly basis. And he, at the end of ninth grade, that was the last year he was going to teach. And he, I was like one of the first persons he ever showed this to in the high school was that he got accepted in Jefferson Medical School, and he was going to go to medical school. And I thought, hey, that's a, what a great idea this was, right? So eventually, I went to Jefferson Medical School too. So you attended Muhlenberg College? Muhlenberg College,
0: yes. From 73 to 77. What was that like?
1: That was a pretty good school. It was, at the time, it kind of marketed itself almost a pre-med factory. And it was already, I was in Allentown at the time. And so I had to essentially work my way through school, which was quite difficult. Uh, because it did take a lot of work to pay from school. Um, so especially towards the end, I worked a full-time job. Plus, I went to school.
0: Did you yeah. enjoy college? Do you have extracurricular activities you enjoyed?
1: I did have a lot of extracurricular activities. I was pr- particularly interested in art, especially towards my senior year. I did a lot of that. Uh, but you know, you have a circle of friends, and you still have fun with them when you have a chance, right? But when I went to medical school, then I got a scholarship to go to medical school, which didn't cover everything. But then I still ended up being poor. And I didn't really like this idea of being poor. So they, I got an army scholarship too, right? That was a different one. And they paid you a stipend per month and everything else. So I thought, maybe I'll just do that because then I'd have more money. So I went through medical school and an army scholarship. Um, and it was pretty nice to have all that free time and not having the work. So I went to art school at night uh, while I went to medical school. At that point, I was, going, I was doing a lot of ceramics. So, but I also took bartending courses, all sorts of stuff, you know, just because it was... There was a lot of time and it was, it was pretty fun. So comparatively speaking, I had more fun at medical school than college. So you did your residency at the Medical Center of New York? St. Vincent's.
0: And why did you go there instead of doing a, an army residency, right? Because you're on a scholarship.
1: So you're ordinarily expected, this is a kind of a fluke of whatever fates or whatever. So you're expected to go in the army. And then what they usually do is make you be a medical officer somewhere in like the Philippines for a couple of years. And they get, they dangle this ophthalmology residency in front of you like a carrot, you know, and then you have to sign up for extra years to get the ophthalmology residency. So I just wrote them a letter saying, I don't want to do an ophthalmology residency. And they're like, so what time came around, they sent me this letter back. They said, we regret to inform you, you, can't, you, know, you haven't been selected for an Army residency, you have to do a civilian one. I'm like, cool. <laughs> so then I did this one in New York. And the reason I went to New York, because I really liked art a lot, so I thought, well, Greenwich Village, you know, that's where this was. What a great place for art.
0: Now, instead of doing a retina fellowship after your residency, you went to Landstall Army Base in Germany? Yes. And you were- Let's see, uh, from 85 to 86, you were an ophthalmologist, then you were chief of ophthalmology there from 86 to 89. Tell me about that.
1: Lancer Army Regional Medical Center was the biggest hospital outside of the United States uh, in the Army system. It's the only place they had like neurosurgery. They had five neurosurgeons. Huge place. Uh, So it it was a very busy place. And that was during the time when Reagan built up the NATO forces, the US NATO forces, to unbelievable levels. So there were 250,000 Americans just in that catchment area, just right around there. And they used to fly people in from the Middle East or whatever if they had an eye injury. So we had a huge number of people in that area. So that was quite a busy thing. And if you're the ophthalmologist, you're the ophthalmologist. So if somebody needs a DCR, you have to do it, right? How many other ophthalmologists were there with you? When I first got there, only one other one. Then they left me alone. I was there for a year by myself, so I was in call like every day, which, you're the only ophthalmologist for two hundred fifty thousand people. It's, it was, I got to do a lot of stuff. But you buckles. hadn't done a
0: retina fellowship. You right. were doing retina surgery.
1: Yeah, at least easy buckles and stuff like that.
0: The easy buckles out of,
1: out of your residency. Yeah, was that yeah. stressful for you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you did like retinal lasers, you know, stuff. You'd be surprised how resourceful. What about you be. the
0: vitrectomy surgeries?
1: We, we didn't do that there. There was a retina guy, Cal Mine, oh. who I did, did send patients to. Uh, f- and otherwise, we'd have to send them to the United States. He was in Frankfurt. So he was like, oh, okay. he was about a, two hours away. How funny. Wow. Yeah. So he's a pretty well known guy in retina, too.
0: So you're in residency. What led you to retina fellowship? What got you interested in
1: retina? I don't know how it happened, but Larry Inuzzi in New York, I didn't even actually fill a whole application after for them. He found that I was in Germany, and he had somebody call up our department of ophthalmology in Germany on this kind of like secret line, which I have no idea how he could ever figure out how to, he had a secretary do that, and they're like, hey, can you come to New York? On a, so I go interview with them, and you know, he's a very impressive guy, right? So he said, where are you going to go? I was like, well, I really like Emory. And he said, oh, this place is way better than Emory, right? And I kind of believed him, so that's why went there. But and then he couldn't get rid of me after that. So
0: let's see, who was there at the time that you did your fellowship?
1: Yale Fisher was the other really prominent person at that time. John Sorensen was also kind of in that. He was not quite a partner then. I think we're kind of held that off a little bit but he was like the resident instructor at Manhattan Eye which is like a job that you had the supervised fellows and residents and stuff like that. And his, the guy he taught was Jason Slachter, right? So then I became fellow. Slachter became the resident instructor. So he was my resident instructor. So it was kind of like a, you know, Sorensen begets, Slachter begets, it was like kind of biblical kind of <laughs> thing there. We have a lot of fun in our practice because we have a lot of guys to talk to. I'm sure you realize what that's like when you have people who are pretty sharp and keep you on your toes, and they're fun to talk to. And
0: And so you've been in that practice now for- Since 1994. Since 94. So in 1999, only nine years after you started in practice, you published your first book, uh, Diseases of the Vitreous and Retina. You were the sole author. That's pretty precocious. That's impressive. What led you to
1: do that? By 1999, I had like a kind of lot of experience being a resident instructor, teaching fellows in residence. I thought I'd, it, it really wasn't a great book for that level. If you wanted to like learn about retina, from like a, the practical stuff and about a wide range of things in retina. So I thought I'd write a textbook about that. Now in the meantime, the, that basic and clinical science book from the academy has grown into a much better book. Maybe there's not so much reason to have my book. But my book is, I think, in print for about four or five years. And curiously, it sold more use than it did for the list price for a while. So I think if some people found it useful.
0: Now, that wasn't all, though. You've been co author on several books, including Age-Related Macular Degeneration, published in 2004, Medical Retina, published in 2005, and Pathologic Myopia, published in 2014. You know, the vast majority of retina specialists have never published a single book. So, what gives you the wherewithal to do all of this? It's really pretty impressive.
1: That medical retina series, there was actually th- three books of that. And Frank Holtz and I, they, Springer came to us and asked us to write a series of books about that. So, uh, we wrote three, three separate volumes of that. And Frank Holtz, me, um, Stefan Schmidt-Walkenberg, and I think it was uh, maybe Daniel Polakoff, I'm not sure he was on that book, Wrote an atlas of autofluorescence then too. That was one of the first books about autofluorescence. I developed autofluorescence for a fundus camera, and they had been using autofluorescence for with the Heidelberg instrument. I I developed the idea about using green light for autofluorescence, which we now use for optos and a number of other things. So the images that I got because I was using a fundus camera which wasn't confocal were a bit different than what scanning laser ophthalmoscopes do.
0: At last count, you've authored nearly 400 publications in peer-reviewed journals, a simply astounding number of papers, but you don't just produce a great deal of scientific research, you produce science that your peers find very meaningful. And I'm not just being flattering because a paper published in the journal Retina earlier this year in 2022, analyzing the highest cited retina papers published in the decade between 2010 and 2020, identified you as the author of the single highest-cited paper titled Retinal Vascular Layers Imaged by Fluorescein Angiography and Optical Coherence Tomography Angiography. And you also had the most papers, as first author, in the list of top 100 most cited papers. That's really an unbelievable acknowledgement of the real impact that you've had on the science of retina. So what do you consider to be the most important contribution to the retinal literature from your perspective?
1: Sometimes it's a little bit like asking you what's your favorite kid, which I have one. No, I don't. Have one. <laughs> I don't, I don't. But uh, I think just in general, in broader kind of strokes as the autofluorescence papers were really quite good. at it, That plus using OCT and autofluorescence, because I had to, like the ability to do that, as did people who used Heidelberg. that gave the idea of looking at central serous patients see this like shaggy photoreceptors that build up on the outer segments and how that drips down and then seeing how best disease is exactly the same thing and proposing the idea that the teleform material that we see as a clinical entity is really shed outer segments that aren't phagocytized by the rp the retina being elevated away from the rp so the rp can't do its job of phagocytosis and then a lot of the oct papers developing edi oct i think was a helpful thing for people so that we could look at the choroid. I realize that's a kind of a dumb thing, just being able to see how thick the quarry it is, but we milk that for a lot. But it, it was pretty insightful for some of those papers. And then the, moving later into OCTN geography and looking at what are we actually seeing with OCT and geography and what are the potential pitfalls in the terms of artifacts. What I find
0: particularly fascinating about you is your proclivity towards the development of novel theories on the pathophysiology of retinal disorders. You know, the word philosophy comes from the Greek term for love of wisdom. But in modern times, it refers to a person who offers views or theories on profound questions in ethics, science, metaphysics, and other related fields. So I think you, Rick, certainly fit the description of a retinal philosopher. So if you don't mind indulging me, I'd love to throw out a few examples of what I would consider to be your retinal philosophizing that I find particularly interesting and tell me whatever comes to mind, anything you like. And I think it's additionally notable that for each of these papers, you were in fact the sole author. So you did all the lifting, no help from others on all of these topics. Macular Hole Hypotheses published in the American Journal of Ophthalmology in 2005.
1: So that was a kind of an interesting era. I started looking at thinking about the, like the mechanical engineering behind how a hole could develop. And we just had OCT starting then. But what I saw didn't match what Gas said. And a lot of stuff that Gas said didn't seem to make that much sense to me. So I got invited to this party at Kurt Gitter's house. This was like an outdoor party in New Orleans. And Don Gass was there. And I was the kind of young, you know, guy, right? And I said, I went up to Don Gas. you don't know who I am, but... I was looking at your theories, I'd look at OCT, and I, I don't think that your theories are right, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you would say, okay, this guy, something's wrong with him. But G- Gast was very interested in what I had to say, right? So I, I told him about stuff like, you know, he had that the Mueller cells came up and they, they s- pulled things inwards. And I said, if they pulled things inward, why does a whole form where they're pulling in towards? and then the hole expands outwards, how can they go outwards if they're pulling in? That kind of stuff, you know? Or like why there's the stage one A hole versus stage one B, you know? How could the pigment move around like that? You would think, this guy would think, this is, something's wrong with me, but he, he took me very seriously and he was interested in it. And maybe about a month later, he came up to New York and we spent the day together and he looked at OCTs which were again, were very primitive at the time, which he thought were useful. But he then said he, he pretty much stuck to what he thought to begin with.
0: Well, I think what's really interesting, in addition to the science behind that, is what that interaction between you and Don Gass says, both about you and Don Gass, right? One, it says that you, had a, you believed enough in what you were doing to bring it up to him and politely disagree. Um, and
1: he respected you enough to take it very seriously. He was a really a great guy. He was a gentleman and tremendous person.
0: Corey Capillari's flow features follow a power law distribution, implications for characterization, and mechanisms of disease progression published in the American Journal of Ophthalmology in 2016 as well.
1: That had a little bit of mathematical basis to it. There's like some real basic organizing things that we think about like in the way we look at the world. In biologists, we commonly look at like Gaussian curves and the distribution of like height often follows a Gaussian curve or any other kind of attribute you wanted to mention, hemoglobin levels in your blood. But in nature, there's another kind of curve, and that's a power law curve. And there's very few, say in power law curves, very few, say, big things and lots of little things. And it follows any kind of thing in physics is like that. So if you look at websites, there's very few big ones like Amazon or whatever, lots of little ones. and the person who first thought, or kind of got the idea of this was this guy, George Zipf. And George Zipf was a professor at Harvard. And he looked at how commonly used words are in the English language. And he found that the most commonly used word was used twice as often as the second most commonly used word. And it was used three times more often than the third most commonly used word. And the 10th most commonly used word was used 10 times more often than the 100th most commonly used word. It's like such a, like a crazy thing with mathematics, right? So um, that's called Zipp's law, and if you, you plot it out, it forms a f- kind of a curve that looks like this, not a bell-shaped curve. If you look at the populations of cities in the United States, for instance, there's the, it follows a curve, follows almost the same thing. Um, so people then looked at Wikipedias in 30 different languages, and over a 12 log unit scale, every language, human language follows that pattern. And then people then looked at, you know, these like whistles, which they're called whistles for some reason, but that sound that that porpoises make, they have different words that they say. There's like a hundred different kinds of things that apparently they can communicate with these different chirps or whistles, and that follows the same kind of curve. But the curious thing is if you look at the size of areas of voids, flow voids in the coria capillaris, and you plot them out, it follows that curve perfectly. It's like a mathematical thing. We kind of look at the idea of these flow voids in the coria capillaris as being a defect, and they get, there was more of them as you get older, and maybe it's a degenerative thing, but we're degenerating in a kind of a mathematical way. <laughs> choroidal blood flow,
0: review and potential explanation for the choroidal venous anatomy, including the vortex vein system, published in Retina in 2020.
1: So if we think about a river, there's many little branches will come into bigger branches, bigger branches, bigger branches, like a fractal kind of thing. And if you measure the length of each one of those things, it follows a power law relationship (laughs) because fractals and power law are like each side of the same coin. That doesn't happen in the choroid, right? You have like a group of, of lobules that gets drained into one vein and that vein goes all the way along a course of your eye up into the ampulla Vortex vein, and right next to it, is another group of lobules that doesn't meet into, into the previous one. That by itself goes all the way up to the. So we have all these parallel pipes in the cori. So you think why? Why would it do that? You know, it's a kind of bizarre thing. It's more efficient to have them all growing together and make one final big pipe, right? That's that's how we're designed all over our body, except for the cori. For venous drainage core, it's some, something different. Why, why would that be? So I was trying to figure that out, and that's a hard thing to figure out. It does keep each one of those sets of lobules independent. Maybe it offers a kind of way to buffer pressures inside your eye during the pulse cycle. It could act as a store of oxygen in those big veins uh, in case you'd like rub your eye and you raise the pressure inside your eye beyond systolic blood pressure. I still see you, right? It's not like my vision went away. Maybe it acts like a heat sink. Having all those veins like that, it's a kind of curious thing. So I was trying to puzzle through some of that stuff in, in there, in that article. And I reviewed a lot of what's known, and there's curiously a lot that's not known about that.
0: What are two or three of the top experiences or awards that you feel most proud of or a greatest sense of accomplishment over?
1: Well, it's not going to sound like an award. I think the thing that I look back on that I'm like so happy about is my, my relationship with like Larry Unizzi and Yale Fisher, and then over a bigger thing in our society, a little like Sandy Brooker, right? What, what a great guy that is, and what an opportunity to like, be friends with him. Larry Singerman, or Don Gass, we already mentioned. Think of how many great people we get to be, be around. You established
0: the Spade Family Scholarship Fund at yes. Jefferson Medical College. Yes. Tell me about
1: that. Part of it was that it was it's really expensive to go to medical school. It was hard for me to go through school, so we thought that'd be that would be a good thing to start up, is at least help somebody along the way like that. There's uh Jefferson is a very great, very imaginative dean, who's now the president of the college. And he set up a program in conjunction it's a six-year program with Princeton. And in the first two years, they don't really study science so much. They study design and art and things like that. And it's uh like three D printing, all sorts of stuff like that, and I thought this is the greatest thing in the world. I, if I was then, I, you know, if I came back to life and I could go to medical school, that's what I want to do. So that's what our scholarship awards that.
0: Multiple U. S. patents and patent spending. Tell me about that. You're you're an innovator in so many ways. What
1: got Some you? Some of them were like the autofluorescence idea. That was a pretty that was a pretty good one. I mean, it's a good idea, and, and certainly people use that kind of idea now. Green light autofluorescence is used in Heidelberg. Not to say that they're in any way infringing this patent. That it has, it's, that patent's probably it's owned by Topcon anyway. So, and Optos uses green light for autofluorescence and that sort of thing. I think it's a, a kind of a healthier way for your eye than blue light autofluorescence is. In, in, on top of that, part of that came about was kind of a funny thing because we had the, we got this instrument from Heidelberg. And at that time, I think they did 500, they could do 500 pixels or something like this. It was, because a lot of people were using that for ICG. So we got that and um, it was really loud and a high-pitched sound. And we didn't think the pictures were that good. So we sent it back. And the guy who was head of Heidelberg at the time was Gerhard Zinzer. right? This made him upset that we sent this back, right? So then they upgraded and made a new device and it had 1024 in terms of the number of scan lines that it did. So that was better. So we tried that out and we still didn't like it that much. We sent it back. And then that made me really unhappy. So then, then they got autofluorescence's capability for that. So we thought this would be great because we don't have any way to do autofluorescence. We should get this machine again. So we went back to them and they're like, no, we're not gonna sell you this thing because you sent it back twice. You know? Then I thought, how can I do autofluorescence? So then I made these filters for a fundus camera. It took several iterations. And at that time you could take apart a F- Top Gun fundus camera pretty easily. So I took it apart and kept putting the filters in and trying different filters to come up with that filter set that I eventually did come up with. And it worked. See, So then we started publishing papers on that. That made Gerhard Zinzer like super mad. So he, <laughs> I was like devil incarnate to this guy, right? And over a long period of time, especially after I made that EDI OCT and, and they implemented their machine and stuff like that, then he started to like me. And then towards the end of his life, unfortunately, fortunately was a little bit cut short, um, then, then we really liked me.
0: What qualities do you think are important to become the consummate retina specialist?
1: There's a lot of, you know, our our field takes a long time to get good at, right? I don't know if you're really a, your peak until you're probably in your 50s at least, right? So I think that you probably may have thought you were a very good surgeon when you finished your fellowship, or three years later, but I bet you're a better surgeon now than you're back then. And so, why is that? And it's not due to that you can have less tremor or that you have better vision than you had back then, but you've learned a thousand little tricks during surgery and maybe can't even verbalize some of those tricks that you can do now that avoids a problem three steps later. And so, That kind of improvement, that aggregated kind of thing takes a lot of personal effort to really reach a higher level of stage.
0: One final question. You've accomplished so many very positive things in your life, notably a life that was pretty challenging in your youth. But despite a lack of family or community emphasis on education, something in your soul drove you to pursue higher education. And you found a way to pay for college and medical school through sheer grit, determination and perseverance. If there were a lesson to be learned from your life story, what would you hope that would be?
1: I've learned a lot of things on the way. It's like, I sound like I'm 100 years old now, but you know that if you do stick with it and have a dream or an idea that you can accomplish that and don't aim too low, that's maybe I kind of recalibrated myself at each kind of cohort as I talked to you about. Um, that you can aim high, I think, and I don't think you can overshoot. I mean, you just keep, like, go for whatever you want to go for, I guess, um, and that along the way, you meet really great people, and, and that's the thing that propels, I think, everyone, right, the, look at the people that we can meet through our societies, and they are really tremendous people, and they're all generous, really nice people, and boy, are they great. Role models for us, and and we in turn act like role models for other people. I think who are coming up, and and that kind of community is, is really valuable and really tremendous. They they can't they can't overstate how great that is.
0: Rick, this is a great conversation. Thanks so much for chatting.
1: Thanks for having me.